Welcome into the local angle. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, and we're now living in a world where the Patriots were too cheap to sign DeAndre Hopkins. We've seen this before with players, and their offer was more incentive-based than the one he signed with Tennessee, which aggravated me. My thoughts were made abundantly clear last week. They should have overwhelmed him with an offer. They didn't. It makes me feel like the Patriots still think guys want to play for them. Newsflash, they don't. They wanted to play for Tom Brady. But anyway, for now that we're in this point where they don't have Hopkins, I was thinking about what would make the Patriots offense look good this season because obviously last year was a complete disaster. And obviously you have Bill O'Brien. That certainly helps rather than having somebody that was completely incompetent in Matt Patricia, okay? But my conclusion to how the Patriots can have a really good offense this year, at least a good offense, really good is tough to say just because there's so many high-octane offenses in the NFL, the Chiefs, the Bengals, etc. But my conclusion for the Patriots being successful offensively this year is embrace their inner Titan. They need to do what the Titans did a couple of years ago, right? So if you look at the 2021 NFL season, the top five teams in rushing yards, The Eagles, the Colts, the Ravens, the Browns, and the Titans, as I mentioned. So that year, you had Hurts and Lamar putting up big running back numbers as quarterbacks, right, in terms of their rushing yards. But the Colts, they had Jonathan Taylor. The Browns, of course, Nick Chubb, who's squatting like a million pounds right now, if you've seen those videos. And the Titans had Derrick Henry. Jonathan Taylor was number one in the NFL that season, north of 106 rushing yards per game. Chubb was second. Derrick Henry would have been first in rushing yards per game, but he only played the eight games. He was at 117.1. So Jonathan Taylor and the Colts, they did not make the playoffs that season. Nick Chubb and the Browns didn't make the playoffs, but the Titans with Derrick Henry did. And the Titans in 2021, Derrick Henry in those eight games averaged 27.4 yards per carry. That is a ridiculous number, and it would have led the NFL by a wide margin that season. But... If you look at 2020, Henry was at 378 attempts, most in the NFL by 66 carries. He was north of 2,000 yards, led the league in rushing. Okay, so then if you look at 2019, 303 attempts, most in the league, north of 1,500 yards, led the league. So you get the point here. For three straight seasons, the Titans made the playoffs. In 19 and 20, Henry led the league in both attempts and carries. In 2021, he led the league in rushing attempts per game if he had qualified, in rushing yards per game if he had qualified there. So this did not result in Super Bowls for the Titans, but they did play in an AFC title game. They had a bye in 2021 before they lost to the Bengals, and in 2020, they were upset by the Ravens in the first round. I guess not technically an upset, but you get my point. Is They made the playoffs three consecutive years. One year, they were the best team of the regular season in the AFC. Another year, they made it all the way to the AFC title game. But that three-year run, that's a pretty good run for a team, right? And they're making these runs in a league that is now obviously pass-heavy. So what I want the Patriots to do now, now that they don't have Hopkins, embrace this strategy. You have a limited quarterback, right? You have an elite running back, though. So why not just feature your best player as much as you possibly can? Tennessee did that with Derrick Henry. Last year, if you look at Ramondre Stevenson, again, the Patriots' best player, He was 18th in rushing attempts in the league. And part of that look is he had Damian Harris last year, who had 106 rushing attempts, despite the fact that he was in and out of the lineup with injuries. But Ramondre was at 18th. But when I look at the Patriots, there is no other elite weapon on the offense. And I think most of us would agree with that, right? Now, ideally, you would want to build with an elite receiver or an elite quarterback. But guess what? The Patriots don't have either. They're not in that situation. So again, I come back to this idea. Why not just embrace what the Titans did with Derrick Henry? Ramondre, with a brutal scheme last year with Matt Patricia, 
he was tremendous. He was fourth in yards per attempt after, or fourth in yards per attempt in general at 5.0. And this is despite being at 3.81 yards after contact per attempt. That was first in the NFL. So he was making basically his own plays because he was getting hit in the backfield so often. By the way, to compare him to Derrick Henry, Henry last year, 3.60 yards after contact. That was third behind, of course, Ramondre Stevenson at 3.81. So the point being is Ramondre lives in the neighborhood with the Derrick Henrys of the world, with the Josh Jacobs of the world, with the Saquon Barkleys of the world, if you give him those opportunities. He showed last year he's an elite back. So nobody, if you look at last year, had a harder job than Ramondre based on how bad the league, the line was rather for the Patriots. And you look at some of these numbers too, he still was 10th of the NFL in 10 plus yard runs. And that's with the Patriots, according to ESPN's metric, rush block metric, they were last in the NFL. He still was able to put up these numbers. So if you look at Derrick Henry, last year he led the league with 349 attempts. He finished with 96.1 yards per game. That was second in the NFL. So if you take Ramondre Stevenson, and I know he wore down a bit last year, but you would think now that he has that season of being heavily used, that he's going to have more endurance going forward, right? Because the previous season, he wasn't the main back. That was Damian Harris. But what I want from Ramondre is 300 carries. So if you take Ramondre's yards per attempt, 5.0, and give him 300 carries, we're looking at 1,500 yards. Even if you say, hey, maybe he drops to 4.8 yards per carry, which I imagine he's going to be at five or higher because the scheme's going to be better from an offensive perspective, We're looking at 1,440 yards if he averages 4.8 yards per carry. So I get this whole idea of the 300 carry back at the NFL. They don't age well. But the reality is you have Chubb, you have Jacobs, you have Hunter Henry, and a guy like Ramondre. You're wasting time if you don't put these guys in the top five in rushing attempts per season because these guys aren't playing into their mid-30s anyway. So what we've seen these players at the NFL at the running back position, we've seen this whole Saquon Barkley thing they're not getting paid, might as well feature them as much as you possibly can when they're still in their prime. It's not like a pitcher you're saving innings on where you have an innings limit for later on in his career. It's not an NBA player with load management. These running backs do not age particularly well, so might as well get all the meat off the bone when you have him here under a good contract. So another benefit of just feeding Ramondre would be that he helps Mac. And this is what happened with Derek Henry, with Ryan Tannehill, right? So if you look at Tannehill, Tannehill in 2019 was first in passer rating, and he was at just 228 yards per game, which was 25th. So yeah, he didn't throw for a ton of yards, but he was efficient. And what's the reason for that? The reason for that is the fact that you have a really good running game. If you look at 2020, he was fifth in passer rating, at and the yards per game, 238, that was 21st. So same thing, good passer rating, Not crazy with the yardage, but uber efficient, right? And in those two seasons, the Tennessee Titans went 18-8 and with Tannehill as the quarterback because, remember, he took over for Mariota relatively early in that season in 2019. So basically, with Ryan Tannehill in those two seasons as the Titans quarterback, they won 69% of their games. And what we saw in Miami, Tannehill was not particularly great. I'm not saying he was a bust or he was horrible, but he wasn't good. And what we've seen is Tennessee has even drafted a quarterback because they're preparing for the future. So it isn't so much about Tannehill, right? It's about the scheme with Derrick Henry. And if you look at it, that 692 winning percentage that Tannehill had when he was a member of the Titans, it's ridiculous. It's better than career numbers for Big Ben, John Elway, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, and Jim Kelly. So I'm not saying that Tannehill is a Hall of Famer, clearly. I'm just saying 
It's just to say that his team won at a Hall of Fame level because of the running back that he was playing with and because they featured the running back. And most teams don't have this luxury, right, to be able to do this, right, because they don't have an elite running back. But the Patriots do. Everything we saw from Ramondre Stevenson last year tells us that he can live in the same neighborhood as Nick Chubb, Derrick Henry, Josh Jacobs, and Saquon Barkley. Now, McCaffrey's a different type of guy because he's basically an elite receiver as well. But what Tannehill became was an uber-efficient quarterback because of Derrick Henry's presence. And what we saw the Titans do is embrace Derrick Henry as a threat. Now, there have been studies done that, and this is another way that they can make this work for the Patriots, is there's been studies done that essentially a great running game doesn't mean you're going to have a great play-action passing game. But when you do have a great running game, it can certainly help. Again, back to this Tennessee theme. You look at Ryan Tannehill. 30.9% of his dropbacks in 2019 came via play action, and that's from Pro Football Focus. That was the sixth highest rate in the NFL. He completed 77.1% of his passes. That was first in the NFL. 12.7 yards per attempt. That was first in the NFL. 11 touchdowns, which was tied for third, and he only played in 14 games. So he was basically the best play action passer in the NFL in 2019, 2020. 36.2% of his dropbacks out of play action. Second in the NFL, 9.6 yards per attempt. Third in the NFL, 1,703 passing yards out of play action. That was third in the NFL, okay? So the play action thing that we talk about so often, there are layups in the NFL, and the Patriots with Ramondre and Bill O'Brien, they can have that same effect on Mac Jones. He can become an uber-efficient quarterback. You made... Ryan Tannehill's life so easy in Tennessee, the Patriots can do this same thing. And if you go back to Mac's lone season at Alabama, or his final season, I should say, at Alabama, not his lone season, 2,379 yards out of play action, most in college football, and he completed 75.9% of his passes second, so he's really good in play action. Even last year, if you look at Mac, he was third last in terms of the passes out of play action at 16.7%, or dropbacks out of play action. Third last. Now, part of that is because you were behind the stick so often that play action wouldn't work. But anyway, you look at the difference. Max completion percentage jumped 9.6 percentage points when he was in play action compared to not in play action. That was the second highest rate in the entire NFL behind only Daniel Jones. Again, another guy that played with an elite running back where his numbers went up last year. And so he was down the bottom of the league in percentage of dropbacks out of play action, but he was one of the best when he actually threw the ball out of play action, 73.1% in terms of the completion percentage, the third best. So the third highest completion percentage, yet the third fewest dropbacks out of play action. So Mac, we talk about the fact that Ramondre Stevenson could certainly help him. Mac Jones is a really good passer out of play action. So why not just embrace that more? And you have the guy in terms of the running back that can do that. So my idea for the Patriots offense being successful 300-plus carries for Ramondre Stevenson. Top three in percentage out of dropbacks for Mac in terms of play action. That's how you get the most out of the Patriots offense in 2023. Embrace what you do well. It's not sort of the norm in the NFL right now, but you tell me. You think the Patriots can just be a high-octane offense with Juju Smith-Schuster as their number one option and Mike Gusecki or Devontae Parker as their number two? No. Double down on what you do well, which is feed Ramondre Stevenson and play action for Mac. All right, coming up next, you'll hear from John Jastrzemski from New York, New York, the guys from the Philly Special, and, of course, Jason Goff from the Full Go in Chicago. 
This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Hello and welcome to The Local Angle. It's the Ringers Philly special. I'm Chris Ryan, joined as always by Raheem Palmer. Our producer, Cliff Augustine, might jump in. Raheem, what's going on, man? Life is good for me. I can't speak on the Philadelphia 76ers, but I'm just trying to enjoy the summer before we get to NFL season, so I can't complain. I'd like to enjoy the summer too. That's that's a good that's a good way of looking at it. I would love to, but we are in a situation with the Sixers where there's never a dull moment. There's actually, despite it being the dog days, despite it being almost August, free agency is a thing in our rearview mirror. Summer League is wrapping up. Everybody is going away. We should be done with all of this. But the Sixers are making headlines this, re- this week for really all the wrong reasons. Uh, we're going to run through a pretty busy week of Sixers news uh, here on the local angle on the Ringers Philly special. So let's just start at the top, which is from Tuesday, Raheem. Uh, Joel Embiid, the reigning MVP, the Sixers franchise player. He appeared at a uh, something called the Uninterrupted Film Festival with uh, LeBron's longtime uh, business partner and friend, Maverick Carter. They were on stage doing some kind of talk. I have no idea. And this is the quote that everybody has been batting around all week. It's Joel Embiid on stage, and he says, I just want to win a championship, whatever it takes. I don't know where that's going to be, whether it's in Philly or anywhere else. I just want to have a chance to accomplish that. I want to see what it feels like to win that first one. And then you can think about the next one. It's not easy. It takes more than one, two, or three guys. Got to have good people around you. And myself, every single day, I work hard to be at that level so I can push us to make it happen. Uh, This was not received great, especially because it's such a quiet time. You know, it's like, other than the Phillies, there's really not a lot to talk about. The Eagles are just ramping up. And so this got a lot of attention. Joel Embiid uh, was experiencing pushback on these quotes online, and he tried to sort of play it off. He said, you forgot my middle name. His middle name is Troel or Troll Embiid on Twitter. Uh, So, you know, he tried to play it down a little bit, but most people read this as the opening volley of the beginning of the end of Joel Embiid in Philly, or at least him putting the Sixers on notice that he didn't want to go through more turmoil, more second round exits. Raheem, what were your feelings, your thoughts when you first saw these comments? First things first, I told you guys all year that this was coming. I, right. I told you this was coming. <laughs> Here we um, go. <laughs> I said this was coming if the Sixers lose to the Celtics. And I'm disappointed because to me, Joel Embiid, if you say that, you got to stand on it. 
don't 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 say you were trolling. We know you weren't trolling. That's what you meant. But for this to come from you, first things first. Joel Embiid shot 43% in the postseason with 35 turnovers to 24 assists. In addition to scoring 15 points on 5 for 18 shooting and with 4 turnovers in Game 7. You aren't Damian Lillard. You aren't playing on your own. You can't say this after the performance you put up in the postseason. You will never win another MVP again until you prove it in the postseason. Right now, this ducks all accountability. I'm just absolutely disgusted because it's one thing to complain about the turmoil and the lack of consistency and the fact that you haven't really had a true running mate who wanted to stay with you. But you can't say this. Not after that performance. Yeah, I mean, he's also doing it at a very sensitive time for the Sixers where they're dealing with another dissatisfied star in James Harden who's opted into his contract, requested a trade, gone through this process of the summer where he he is, you know, essentially put the Sixers in this position where they're going to get 50 cents on the dollar in a trade for James Harden. They're not going to get what they need back from him. He wants to go to the Clippers. We're going to get to the Harden part, but this is just bad timing by Joel. He could have just said, yeah, man, want to win a championship. Can't wait to start again next season. There's really no point in saying this unless you want to get the league talking about you again. And frankly, it almost feels like he's trying to distract people from the fact that like, Look, man, this team is the same team it was when Iguodala was on it. We're, we're, this, we're, the, we're in the same spot we were in 2012. And I remember that season, and I like, really loved that team, that 11-12 that team that lost to the Celtics in seven in the second round, just like this Sixers team just did. But it came with a lot less drama, honestly. You know, and I think that for guys like you and me, Raheem, around the same age, who remember Barkley and grew up through Iverson... We're going to be Philly fans long after the time Joel Embiid is gone. Whether he retires as a Sixer or he demands a trade out or we trade him or whatever happens. And I think that I speak for a lot of people. I usually don't do this, but I think I speak for a lot of people where I'm just like, I'm straight up tired of this. Both as a Sixers fan as an NBA fan. I don't think it's good for the long-term health of the league. It has nothing to do with player empowerment or anything like that. But this is not really basketball. This is just gossip. This is just like us aggregating stuff and looking at Instagram and looking at Twitter. And it just sort of starts to get like kind of depressing. And it was really fun when Twitter first started, like NBA Twitter really started popping off like around like 2012. And it was like, this is this new way to watch the game and you can read into people and gossip about it, talk trash and, and celebrate teams and celebrate players. And, and now it just feels like it's kind of subsumed the entire thing. And this is what basketball is now, is like waiting for Lillard to get traded and waiting for Harden to get traded, waiting for somebody to demand out. And I just think it kind of is a bummer and it, it's going to lead to a product where there's like five teams and everybody else is just waiting to get raided by those five teams in one way or another. Cliff, I don't know, like, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, like, I'm tired of this. Like, uh, this is completely unprofessional behavior. And Chris, like you said, like, this is just so dramatic. But I think in a weird way, the NBA does like the drama because it does build it up storylines going into mm-hmm. the season. Like, I'm sure you guys have seen the accusations on Woj this week, and we're not going to get into that, but I'm sure you guys have seen, like, the banter and Woj and Damian Lillard situation. But the whole Embiid thing to me is like, listen, we know he loves Philly. We know he loves being in Philly. He's basically grew up here once he uh, left, you know, Cameroon, spent his little time in Florida, went to Kansas for a little bit, and then came to Philly. But now it's just like, 
you putting pressure on the organization, but what are you doing to, to fulfill your obligation as a star player in the playoffs when it means the most? Like, you win your MVP, cool. But then the playoffs come, Raheem just – Raheem, you literally just put some of the worst stats I've ever heard in my life for an MVP. <laughs> seriously, for an MVP player. So it's like, when are you going to act on it instead of crying, instead of getting on the organization about, hey, we need player X and player Y and player Z? Like, when are you going to tailor your game to being a championship player like Nikola Jokic did? You know? We never have ended a postseason with the Sixers in the Joel Embiid era where we were like, man, Embiid left it all out on the floor and we just didn't have the, yeah. the horses to help him. Like Embiid, Embiid gave it all. Embiid was the best player on the court, and we just had a bunch of bums around him. That's never happened. It's never, and you know, like, I've been giving James Harden a little bit of a pass because at least he showed up for two games. He hit a game winner. Yo, this is also the James Harden recipe. We knew this was going to happen. Did anybody think James Harden was going to be a happy camper? Nobody, Nobody expected that. Yeah, at least James Harden won us two games single handedly. Joel Embiid was the MVP and couldn't do that. So for him to come out and say this, I'm I'm just absolutely disgusted. Yeah, I don't know where it goes from here. I mean, I think obviously he's done some work to like kind of temper, like bring bring the temperature down a little bit. There's other Sixers headlines from this week that we can get into. I think that Joel Embiid is going to be on this team next season. I think Joel Embiid will probably be on the team the following season. But can it really I ask depends. You a question, though? Yeah. I- what is Joel Embiid's trade value? Because I think that's something worth discussing. Well, I'll tell you this. I think it's at its peak right now. I think Joel Embiid, under a little bit of contractual control, coming off of an MVP season, he's 30. So this is like you're in, you got him in his prime. I think that if there was a little bit less of a relationship between the city and the fan base and the player, you would see the trade talk would be a little bit more heavy. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because you look at the star player trades, SGA, Miles Bridges, well, not Miles Bridges, Macau Bridges, Brandon Ingram, Tyrese Halliburton, or you look at the Donovan Mitchell trade where Utah got picks and it got Lori marketing. This could be like the new market inefficiency when you trade a star and you get all of the young. Yeah, you trade a star at his peak value and get all of the young, like, they're young players and one might emerge and be a star. And but there's only so many teams that have a great collection of young players because the league is kind of stratified where you've got some teams that are going all in like the Suns and the Clippers and whoever else. And then you've got these other teams that are essentially hoarding young talent in terms of like San Antonio's or Utah's or Oklahoma cities. And those are going to be difficult trades to pull off where you're going to be like, I'm Joel Embiid getting traded to Utah would be, like we would be talking about that for like months on end about the ramifications of that because I don't think Joel Embiid wants to live in Utah. You know, I don't yeah. think Joel Embiid wants to play there. And you still have to do some star servicing. It's interesting too and you know, you're talking about recent history Raheem like I think that there's also like an interesting Philadelphia conversation to have here where it's like that Barkley trade took a long time to get over. Yeah. And 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 you know, Iverson was a little bit more I think a di- that was a different situation for a variety of reasons when Iverson I fr- left Philly. I, not to cut you off, I had friends who protested the Allen Iverson trade. Yeah. Like I'm they were sh- of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's rough. But Barkley is an example of trading a guy who still had a ton left in the tank, who obviously wanted out of Philly, but getting back Jeff Hornacek, and it felt like it felt like the Sixers got put in a closet for a while until until Iverson, honestly. Yeah. 
Well, we can wrap up the local angle there and we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on with the Sixers. Thanks for watching the local angle and you can listen to the Ringers Philly special on the Ringers Philly special podcast feed on Spotify. Thanks to FanDuel for having us. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. We want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This is episode 267 of the Full Goal Podcast with Jason Goff, brought to you by, of course, the good people at the ringer and of course spotify is the gang you can catch us every sunday every tuesday and every thursday right here and of course this is the local end you know shout out to the good folks at FanDuel tv uh of course chris sutton kyle williams and tony gill along for the ride you know fellas i try my hardest every couple of days to come in here and have some fun with it because Unlike the long form component that I'm used to with this medium where you're talking for four hours, you're talking for five hours, you have time to jump in and out of things. And I always ask myself, like, are people having fun listening to the pod? Well, I don't know if this story will ever be fun, can get fun, but there can be some some good things that come out of this. And we are in the third cycle now of this Northwestern hazing scandal. And it is not only leading national news, it is leading local news. It is on the front page of every online um, publication here locally that I subscribe to or, or check out. First cycle was two weeks hazing. That's how long you're going to be out. <laughs> Pat Fitzgerald and the boys get to not work while they're not working for two weeks in the summer. And then people started to poke around this thing. Journalists started to ask questions. And all of a sudden you started to find out this is this is not just an isolated incident, but this has been a breakdown, not only in culture, but let's face it, man, all the things that we've talked about with SMU, all the things that we've talked about with Penn State, all the things that we've talked about when it comes to scandals, whether it be with Art Bryles and the Baylor uh, sexual assault um, uh, pandemic, epidemic that was going on in Waco, Texas, well, under Art Bryles, um, we all keep bringing up the same words in those stories. Go back and read those stories. The words lack of institutional control come up. Over and over and over and over again. And I think the more that we unearth from this story and the more that we have to kind of, you know, allow what the last pod, a couple pods ago, we called called it. The title was, uh, you know, light sometimes the best disinfectant. Well, it seems as if the entire wound hasn't been um, unearthed or revealed. Because now we're in the third cycle of this story where a young man, Lloyd Yates, who uh, was a quarterback prospect out of Oak Park River Forest High School. Anybody who understands us right off 290 here in the city of Chicagoland area, right? On the west side, not too far from Oak Park. You know, hop, skip, and jump across the across Austin. But this young man had all the hopes in the world to be a Big Ten quarterback and to go to Northwestern. And he said, quote, attending Northwestern was a no-brainer. 
a no-brainer. And he's doing this at 17, 18 years old, handing himself over and his future prospects, whether it be professionally, personally, socially, whatever the case may be, to the Northwestern football program and the leader of that program known as Pat Fitzgerald. He is one of the 12 now players who have come out and said, this is what happened to me. This is how it happened. And like I said, kudos for the fine reporting that's being done because none of this stuff is easy and none of this stuff is easy to hear or listen to or talk about, to be honest with you, because a bunch of this stuff and I, and I, you know, I will say trigger warning to all the people who are viewing this on uh, FanDuel TV for the local angle and all the people who are listening to this right here on the Full Go podcast, because you know, in my connection to my fiance and understanding that she's dealt in sex trauma in her therapy and her practice for a while now, uh, it, it is things that were clear to me are more clear to me in terms of how people respond to certain things and the the leeway that you should give them because you don't know what they've gone through. I want to read from Lloyd Yates' very own words in the Chicago Tribune about where we are now in this story and how this isn't just a Pat Fitzgerald thing. you got to coach up out of it. right Now, he's going to fight for his money, and he's going to do as much as he possibly can do to clear his name. And I think at the end of this, he will say as well that this was a lack of institutional control so he can kind of kick the can down the road and make sure that somebody else picks it up. But this is from the Tribune. Said training camp in Wisconsin started not long after Lloyd Yates graduated from high school. Before he even got to camp, he already had heard, quote, horror stories about what might happen there. I want to stop there. You have a 17-year-old who's hearing about the hazing things and and, um, events that might take place. 17 years old. He said, quote, you have to realize we're 17 to 18 year old young freshmen, really excited, really anxious. We hear these different stories. We're trying to fit in at the time as things you hear about. You don't really think it's true. You don't think it's going to happen to you. But you know it happened to me and it happened to a lot of guys within the culture. Yates described the training camp hazing as, quote, ambushes in the dorm rooms, which players would try to prevent by locking or barricading their doors. This is for training camp. Okay, and this is aside from the story. This is for bonding. This is for you know the times where you're gonna call a guy your brother because you've been in those trenches with them for a couple of weeks in the hot Wisconsin sun. Yates described the training camp as ambushes, like we just mentioned. Quote, we should we would get ambushed by, you know, ten different guys, and then they would come hold you down. And this is where the trigger warning comes in. They would put you in the doggy style position and proceed to dry hump you. Guys would take turns, and it was just very degrading, dehumanizing, and an embarrassing act. Yates also experienced sexualized hazing in the locker room, including a ritual before practice where teammates would make players perform naked in front of everybody. As a freshman quarterback, Yates said he had to do a quarterback center exchange, which requires particularly close contact, naked. So all the stuff that we heard from the Daily Northwestern story and subsequent stories after that, we were wondering where these things were coming from. Is someone going to put their name on this? You know, we're in this time now where when we hear sources, uh, we can quickly poo-poo it, depending on where we stand on the story. If we like the person, if we like the entity, if we like the team, if we like the program, if we like the organization, or if we don't, this is something that you can't just shoo away. Because like we mentioned, these are 17, 18-year-old young men who are being entrusted and their care is being entrusted in one of the most prestigious private universities in all of the world. All of the world. Quote, 
He snapped me the football, just like you would see on Sunday, but I was in the locker room simulating the act with no clothes on. So obviously the experience before I had to go on the field and practice with my teammates was very uncomfortable. It's just humiliating, unquote. Yates recalled a time his teammates subjected him to running because they believed he told a coach that the team had been out partying the night before. So now we're talking about targeted behavior. We're talking about somebody who, and listen, we've all played on teams where guys didn't, I guess, um, do what they were supposed to do, right? And then all of a sudden somebody told on that guy. That's all That's all in the mix of uh Grown up and the dynamics of having your brothers back and all these things. But this stuff in Northwestern was taken way farther than anybody could have fathomed. And now that Ben Crump, that's right, that Ben Crump is on the scene. Now that Steve Levin, a, a very respected attorney here in the city of Chicago, is on the scene. You're going to start to see a lot of things come out about what, not only what happened to these 12 players, but Northwestern's culture going back. When Jordan McNair passed away uh, at, on the University of Maryland uh, football field, during practice, when enough things weren't in place to make sure that if players get overheated, there's a cool down process. There's, there's ways to uh, apply ice and make sure that these dudes are, you know, being taken care of as quickly as possible. Now that Jordan McNair's family has gotten involved over these last few years, it's, it's crazy. There's a story that I saw not too long ago that Jordan McNair's family and the head athletic trainer who was responsible for Jordan McNair that day, you know, they didn't see eye to eye at first, but now they've come together to make sure and ensure that this doesn't happen to anybody else going forward. You, you don't want to send your son off to play football at a Big Ten university and this happened to him. I think we're at the point now, like I said, with the lack of institutional control and all the things that are getting ready to come out about Northwestern football, um, one very important thing hasn't come out. One very important thing that I think needs to be said. And I get in trouble sometimes for doing this at home in my personal life where something will happen to either my family or to my fiance or to people that are close to me. And I'll, say, I'll tell them, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And more times than not, they'll look me in the eye and go, Jason, why are you saying sorry? This has nothing to do with you, right? It, it, it could have been a work thing. It could have been something outside, you know, uh, uh, an external relationship. But the reason why I say I'm sorry in those situations is, one, you know, I want un- someone to understand that's close to me that, you know, there is a measure of empathy that I'm coming in with, if not sympathy. And then, two, Usually when you are um, done wrong or usually when things uh, get out of hand and someone isn't quick to take culpability, you usually don't get an apology as soon as you need it. And for Lloyd Yates, um, at 17, 18 years old, trying to live out his dream, whatever that may be, football was going to be the vessel for him. This young man who is now going on uh, to have a professional life and have a personal life, can't watch football, doesn't watch football. It it brings back too many painful memories. And for him to be this, and and I'll say it, courageous to come out and say some of the things that he uh, was forced to engage in. And the reason why I say it's courageous is because there's so much shame when it comes to these types of activities. Any assault, mind you. (laughs) You you know, we, we talk about 
uh, sexual assault. We talk about physical assault. We talk about all the embarrassment and all the shame that goes along with that for the victims, right? That's why we call these people survivors because sometimes that shame is just too much to bear. Well, I, if Northwestern ain't going to do it, if Pat Fitzgerald is busy fighting for his money right now, if there are players, former players who are going on uh, tours right now, media wise, to to make sure that people know how great Northwestern is and will be going forward. If nobody's done it yet, Lloyd Yates, I just want to let you know, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you had to endure. I'm sorry for what the other young man who thought they were just going to play football and that was they had to endure. Uh, this story is still unraveling and we're still finding out more and more details. And I don't think those details are going to stop anytime soon. So I guess in closing, I'll say this. Um, be careful who you trust. Be careful who you send your kids to and always ask the right questions, which is whatever you have on your mind concerning your child. Because Lloyd Yates now, 10, 12 years after these things have occurred, still has to live with them and still has to go on in normal everyday life trusting people. When at 17, 18 years old, he found himself on a campus where he probably couldn't trust anybody. So that's the local angle. This is the Full Go Podcast. I'm Jason Goff. You can check us out every Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, right here on the Full Go. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans at Empower What's Next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome back to the local angle here on FanDuel TV. I'm John Jastrzemski, the host of New York, New York. And I want to commend the New York Giants. I do. I know there's a lot of chatter at the moment regarding a lot of disgruntled, a lot of angry, and a lot of ticked off running backs around the NFL. And we happen to have one in town, and he's a model citizen, and he's a great player, and he's a great talent. And Saquon Barkley is like the most likable dude that you could have on your football team. So anytime you have a situation where there is a contractual dispute between a player of Saquon's character and caliber, and you're talking about an organization, normally people are going to be like, JJ, how could you sign with the organization? I'm going to tell you why. Look at what's going on around the NFL. There were a couple of test cases. Look at what has transpired in Los Angeles between Austin Eckler, who 
is a player of similar status and stature to Saquon Barkley. Think about what's going on with Vegas and Josh Jacobs, a guy who also had a stellar, eye-opening, eye-popping 22 campaign because I can tell you firsthand, my fantasy team benefited from the idea of Josh Jacobs going and balling out. But what you are seeing with all three of those situations, Barkley, Jacobs, Eckler, what's the common denominator? Teams devaluing and not going the extra mile to placate a running back. It's unfortunate and unfair for those guys because all three of them are probably saying, what more do we need to do? After all, Saquon Barkley for the Giants, he was their most important offensive player. He's carrying them down a stretch, big game against Washington. Postseason game against the Minnesota Vikings. He was spectacular. Yet, he gets the franchise tag. Daniel Jones, who was right there with him and had a very impressive season of his own, he goes and gets $40 million. Why is that? Well, organizations, the smart ones, the wise ones, they don't put their eggs long-term in the basket of a running back. That's just the way it works. GMs value quarterback. You understand why. GMs value offensive tackle. You understand why. They value the cornerback position. All three of those positions, they get crazy money if they are a part of your infrastructure or if they're in a position where they're going to hit the open market. Think about crazy money that quarterbacks get anytime they find a way to free agency. Or a guy like Teron Armstead, who signed a big contract with the Miami Dolphins a couple of years ago. Crazy, crazy money for a tackle. And then think about running backs when they hit the free agent market. I think it's fair to say Dalvin Cook is one of the most dynamic running backs in all football. Is he not? Yet here we are getting ready for training camps to kick off across the board in the NFL. And Dalvin Cook is yet to go and sign with the team. Maybe it will be the Jets. Maybe it will be the Miami Dolphins. Whatever the case may be, he's still unsigned. If he was a corner or he was a tackle or he was a quarterback, would that be the case? No. All three of those positions, you'd be signed, boom, instantly. They would find a way to make the salary cap work. The Giants, Joe Shane, Brian Dable, they're playing hardball. And I think Saquon Barkley is dealing with the unfortunate reality of life in the NFL as a running back in 2023. Now, the end of the day, it's tough to feel sorry for Saquon Barkley with all the money that's coming his way on the franchise tag, with all the endorsement opportunities that come his way. Listen, Saquon is going to be A-OK. But is he going to be treated the same way that the premium position is treated in the NFL? No. And for a giant organization that, let's be real, botched, destroyed a whole lot of salary caps, did not understand the dynamics of the NFL and how to manipulate and how to orchestrate the salary cap properly in the Dave Gettleman regime. Now they got a GM who understands. Could it lead to bad blood down the road with Saquon Barkley and the Giants? Yeah. 
But Saquon's not sitting out this year. There's still too much at stake. He doesn't. The last thing Saquon Barkley is going to do is go down the road of Le'Veon Bell. And if he did go down that road, and I don't think he will, it's not exactly going to work out to his advantage. Look at Le'Veon Bell. How did sitting out that year go? How did ending up with the New York Jets go? He got paid. Give him that. His football career went right down the toilet. He was on, in many ways, a Hall of Fame type of trajectory his first couple of years with the Pittsburgh Steelers. That all went bye-bye-bye the minute he sat out that, what was it, 2018 season. And in 2019, he was, well, a non-factor and way too highly drafted in any fantasy league when he put on a New York Jet uniform. So I don't think we'll see Saquon go down that road. Could it lead to a fracture and friction and the end long-term of Saquon Barkley with the Giants? Yeah, but you know what? You cross that bridge when you get to it. It's a position in which you can be kind of a hardliner. If you're a GM, that's my stance on running backs. And I think the NFL and the guys and the gals who are in positions of power in the NFL kind of agree with that stance. The backs don't like it, but that's business, my friends. That's business. You know what's bad business right now in New York? Our Yankees. What a disgrace. The New York Yankees, the once proud New York Yankees, are in last place. And in sole possession of last place. Now, when I say last place, they're not Oakland A's bad. They're not Detroit Tigers bad. They're not one of those bottom feeders bad because there's still a couple of games over 500. But their offensive numbers might as well be linked and lumped in with all of those cellar dwellers that we're talking about. The Yankees have had a rotten start to the second half. And listen, the Yankees have looked like an anemic joke offensively since Aaron Judge crashed into a wall in Los Angeles about a month and a half ago. But this is not the NBA. One player, no matter how talented they may be, it's not Giannis. It's not Curry. It's not Jokic, where 105 is on a basketball floor and everything is altered and changed when that one guy is not there. That should not be in baseball, especially for a six-week sample size. But the Yankees are one of the worst offensive teams in the sport. Guys with brand name resumes. Underperformances and understatement for John Carlos Stanton. For Anthony Rizzo, who has not homered basically in two months. For DJ LeMayu, who was a batting champion just a couple of years ago and is a shell of the player he once was. It's a total mess. You lose a five out of six on the road to the Rockies and the Angels. You got your six-year, $180 million pitcher and Carlos Rodon getting shellacked and blowing kisses to the fans after giving up bomb after bomb after bomb. Yeah, real good luck, Carlos. And a real lack of accountability across the board from a Yankee perspective. And the Yankees continue to be delusional in the way they operate from this standpoint. Yes, we all know about the tradition, the championships, the history of the organization from Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio and Mantle and Barra and Jeter and Mariano Rivera and the 90s teams that I grew up with that won the World Series year after year after year. Here's the harsh reality. Yankees have not been to, have not won a World Series since 2009. They are not most franchises. 
They're not. Don't look at the Yankees and compare them to the middle of the road. Take your pick. The Pirates, the Royals, the Twins. Like, give me your team. They're not a mid-market team. They have an insane amount of payroll. They have an insane amount of revenue streams, resources, the infrastructure. They have it all. They should not be going on a title job. It might sound spoiled. It might sound entitled. But guess what? They're not closer to that eventual goal. They're further and further away from where they were in 2017 when they were a feel-good story. They are so vile and rotten that I think if you talk to most Yankee fans, and I do, living in the area, being a big Yankee fan myself, I think a whole lot of Yankee fans would prefer to see this team that now, finally on FanDuel, is minus money to miss the playoffs. You could have gotten the Yankees to miss the playoffs a couple of weeks ago. We were doing it on our show East Coast Bias with Joe House, Raheem Palmer. Raheem gave out the Yankees to miss the playoffs at like plus 240 like three weeks ago. You're not going to see plus 240 on FanDuel right about now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. They have minus money to miss the postseason. And I almost am at a point, and I am at a point, where I would prefer that to be the outcome for this 2023 season if, and that is a monumental if, I get these sort of wholesale changes within the organization that desperately needed. Because if you talk to people around the Yankees, they're not concerned about anything. They think their process is good. They think they are, to quote, a championship operation. Oh, really? Championship operation? My, you know what? That's nonsense. Championship operation usually means you get to and win a, a, a couple. Maybe, maybe I missed the memo here. Same organization that used to be World Series or bust. And I get it. That's that's too hard to do in this day and age. Like, I'm not asking the Yankees to go and recreate the 1990s. What I'm asking them to understand is that 13 years and taking steps away and not closer to a championship is insulting to a whole lot of fans' intelligence. And it is insulting to my intelligence. So I am not exactly thrilled about the idea of getting ready to watch the Yankees play the Kansas City Royals over three. And you can forget about those Shohei Otani, the Yankee rumors. Keep dreaming. You want to have me waking up in fantasy land, put Shohei Otani and Juan Soto on the Yankees, then maybe I'll get excited. Remember the old eight ball in the Simpsons? Don't count on it. Bart shaking it up. That's what I'm going to get right now. Maybe it was Millhouse. I don't know. The point being is, I think a whole lot of New Yorkers feeling a similar vibe. Get me the football season. New York, New York. Presented by our friends over at FanDuel Sportsbook. It's the local angle. We'll come right back. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.